Welcome to the Two Journeys Bible Study Podcast. This podcast is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode 38 in our Acts Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Paul Fulfills His Promise and Ministers in Ephesus, where we'll discuss Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 22. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are you going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, there's some amazing things that happen in this section and some things that require some some careful understanding. We have a group of disciples that receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by the laying on of Paul's hand, similar to Acts 8 with um, Peter and John when they laid hands on some Samaritan believers. Um, this is this verse has caused some misunderstanding and difficulty as Pentecostal churches and Pentecostal leaders point to this as an example of the second blessing of the Holy Spirit, that you uh, can be a Christian but not be baptized with the Spirit. So they're going to point to that. So we should address that. And then the whole approach in the book of Acts, is it descriptive or prescriptive? Descriptive is this is what happened. Prescription, prescriptive is this is what should happen. Um, and so that's how we make distinctions here. So we got to talk about that. And then we got the seven sons of Sceva that get severely beaten because they don't know Jesus. And it gives you an insight into the tremendous power of demons and the power of Jesus. And we get a sense also of how the word of God spreads widely, widely and grows in power. Mm. And so even today, we want to see how the Lord can do mighty things through the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of many. So lots of good details today. Let me go ahead and read verses 1 through 22 in Acts chapter 19 as we begin. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. 
Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. How does Paul's return to Ephesus relate to the end of Acts 18, and who did Paul find upon his return? All right, so we learned about Paul in 18, Acts 18, uh, verse 23. It says, after spending some time in Antioch, which is right right near Palestine, it's you know over there near, near Israel and Jerusalem, after spending time in Antioch, he goes up north through Syria and goes over to his home area of Cilicia, Tarsus is there, but he keeps going. He goes through Galatia and Phrygia. Those are central areas in Asia, what we know as modern-day Turkey. And he, he uh, arrives at Ephesus. He takes the road through the interior in verse 1 and arrives at Ephesus. So it's this mountainous area, modern-day Turkey. He's going on an overland route. He's not, not uh, sailing this time, but he's traveling by foot or perhaps by um, – horse or camel or donkey or something like that, but he's traveling and he gets to Ephesus. And who did Paul find upon his return? So it says he found some disciples. Now, disciples are learners. We don't really know who they're disciples of, but we find out they're disciples of John the Baptist. And since it says just simply some disciples, they are ready to be disciples of Jesus. They want to be disciples of Jesus. Maybe they were uh, disciples of Jesus, but they certainly, similar to Apollos with Priscilla and Aquila we talked about last time, they lack some information. There's some things they don't know. And so Paul asked some diagnostic question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, the reason he asked that is that that is a significant mark of the ministry of Jesus Christ, not of John the Baptist. John the Baptist openly said, I baptize with water, but after me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's referring to Jesus. So the superiority of Jesus to John, according to John the Baptist, was the baptism. Jesus had the power to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Mm. What did that mean? The baptism of the Holy Spirit is a sign of new life through faith in Christ. From the moment of Pentecost on, the outpouring of the Spirit was a clear display, a clear display that someone had moved from death to life through faith in Christ. So Paul's just asking a basic diagnostic question. Are you among the thousands that John the Baptist ministered to who went away not yet knowing the history of Jesus who came later? Or do you know about Jesus? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? That's what he's asking. So Paul really is trying to ascertain the spiritual condition of those that he's interacting with, these disciples he finds upon returning to Ephesus. Absolutely. What is his approach to them teach us about dealing with people spiritually? Well, I think uh, when we're trying to find out if somebody's a Christian, we want to ask a number of things. We want to ask some doctrinal questions. What do they believe about Jesus, about the gospel? We want to also see the effect of, of the gospel in their life. You know, are they living a new life? Are they walking in holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit? So he asked them, uh, these disciples, uh, if they had received the Holy Spirit when they believed. And they said, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit, which I find strange because the Holy Spirit's mentioned very, very 
very early in the Bible, namely the second verse of the Bible. <laughs> so, you know, the, the Spirit was hovering over the, over the, uh, the deep. And so that's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's mentioned in many places in the Old Testament, such as David praying in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Mm. And again, in the Song of Moses, they grieved his Holy Spirit. Um, so the Spirit is mentioned, but they didn't understand who he was. They'd not even heard um, that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asks them, then what were you baptized into? Into John's baptism. Hmm. And Paul has to say, look, John baptized with water through repentance. He's almost exactly quoting John. But there is one greater who came later. Let me tell you about him. His name is Jesus. So we want to talk about what happens to these disciples of John after they heard Paul preach Christ and believed. But is there anything more that we need to understand about this questioning, this line of questioning that Paul takes? Have you heard of the Spirit? Well, what were you baptized into? Yeah. Here's what John's baptism was. Yeah. Here's what you need to know about who Jesus is. What, right. What's the connection here before we jump into verses 5 through 7? Well, one thing that comes across to me here, both with Apollos having been baptized into John but never heard of Jesus, and these people having been baptized by John never heard of Jesus – um, Judaism had spread out through the Greco-Roman world. There are Jewish people in the diaspora spread all over the Mediterranean, hmm. uh, who many of whom had heard about this new prophet, John the Baptist, and came back and were baptized by him. Huge crowds coming. And so therefore, there was a time, even after Jesus' ascension to heaven, I would have to say, in which John would have been more famous hmm. than Jesus, better known. Well, that's no longer the case. <laughs> Jesus is in every generation the most famous human being in history, in every generation, because the Holy Spirit is constantly bringing people to a saving knowledge hmm. of, of Jesus. How many of the disciples of Christ, genuine followers of Christ, don't know hardly anything about John the Baptist. My guess is some percentage. Now, clearly, his story is told in the Gospels. But if you had just come to faith in Christ and you hadn't read the Gospels yet, you hadn't never heard of John the Baptist. Mm. So John himself said it in John chapter 3. He must increase and I must decrease. So it says that. Also, just the basic facts. Um, John, you know, preached a baptism of repentance getting ready for one who would come later, mm. and that one is Jesus. So there's, again, we see in the book of Acts, there's an awful lot that happened that isn't mentioned. So somewhere between verse 4 and verse 5, there's a preaching of the message of the gospel. It's clearly implied. There's lots of information that rolled down, and they're like, okay, I got it now. Now they're ready to be baptized. Yeah, so let's talk about the result then of what happens there in that scene between 4 and 5. What happened to these disciples of John after they heard Paul preach Christ and believed? Well, they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so I don't really know why this is a complex case. Uh, it's likely that they were not as yet converted. Hmm. Um, or maybe they're just Old Testament saints types. But the, the mark of the new covenant is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. That's Joel chapter 2. That's the day of Pentecost. And so the coming of the Holy Spirit with visible signs such as speaking in tongues was a mark of the apostolic age. It happened when, when uh, on the day of Pentecost, as we saw. It happened in Acts chapter 8 when Peter and John went from Jerusalem and laid hands on the Samaritan believers and they received the gift of the Holy Spirit. It happened in Acts 10 with Cornelius and his household. It's a marker. It's not something we expect now. So we need to know 
that there are Pentecostal churches in the Pentecostal movement that look on this as a significant uh, doctrinal point that there is such a thing as a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Mm. There is such a thing as being a Christian, a genuine follower of Christ, but not yet having received the gift of the Holy Spirit. But first of all, I don't know the condition of these people, the true spiritual condition before Paul preached the gospel to them and baptized them in water. And so therefore, I think this is just, frankly, most more likely just a gospel opportunity, conversion and the outpouring of the Spirit in the pattern of the book of Acts. Mm-hmm. Now, to go back to what we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, the book of Acts, we cannot say it's only descriptive. When the, it's also prescriptive. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I don't know anybody that would say, well, that's just something Jesus said. There's nothing important for us today. Now, we all know that today the Spirit still advances, or the gospel still advances only by the power of the Spirit. And we have an oppor- uh, uh, we have a responsibility to be witnesses. Um, to Christ. So that's both descriptive and prescriptive. But then there are other things that happen that we say, you know, this is not setting up necessarily a normative pattern from from now on. Now, I believe there are things that have happened in Pentecostal churches or charismatic churches that, you know, it's very difficult for me to say that that's not some genuine work of God. I, I tend to be more open but cautious on on charismatic gifts and things like that. But I do reject that Acts 19 is teaching a normative pattern of a second blessing. Why is that? Because Romans chapter 8 says, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, Mm. you do not belong to Christ. So if you are a genuine, born-again, justified through faith in Christ, believer in Christ, you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You don't need a second blessing. Mm. Now, Beyond that, I'm troubled by the word second. I think the Spirit can come upon you in power more than just twice. He can come upon you again and again and again and again. I would call that the filling of the Spirit. I would not call that the baptism of the Spirit. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones called it the baptism of the Spirit. I think right idea, wrong terminology. Baptism happens at the moment of conversion. Why do I know that? 1 Corinthians 12 says, by one Spirit, you are baptized into one body. So when you became a member of the body of Christ, that is at repentance and faith in Jesus, you were baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Therefore, water baptism, we as Baptists believe this, follow in every case spirit baptism, or at least it should. That's the goal. We try to be certain that this person is a genuine believer in Christ and they've been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. Then we do water as an out and visible sign of the baptism that's already happened. Hmm. Andy, is there anything that we ought to say to those who might make the argument uh, that this passage is an example of baptismal regeneration, thinking based on verse 6, who would look at that and say they were baptized and then they received the Holy Spirit as a result of that, the laying on of Paul's hands. Should we dig into that a little bit or help us understand some of what's going on here? Sure. Baptismal regeneration teaches that without water baptism, you cannot be saved. But there are significant problems with that. The silver bullet always is a thief on the cross. Clearly, he was not water baptized and he's with the Lord in paradise. Uh, another is First Corinthians 1 where Paul says, God did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. If baptism were required for salvation, he would not have made such a foolish and misleading statement. If water baptism were required, he would say, God did send me to preach the gospel and then, of course, immediately to baptize. Now, baptism is significant. It's important. I think you can go to heaven without you can be a genuine follower in Christ without having been water baptized but i think it's highly questionable 
whether you can be a genuine follower of Christ mm. and reject or refuse to be water baptized once someone reputably tells you what it is mm. and that the Lord wants you to do it. For you then to say, no, I will not do it. And that happened. You see that in Japan, for example, because in Japan, Christianity has been there for centuries. Japanese families, very tight-knit, they are following Shintoism as a national religion and Buddhism as a voluntary religion. If they're converted out of that through faith in Christ, Japanese families don't recognize a person as a Christian until they're water baptized. So it's not a matter of baptismal regeneration. It's a matter of baptismal recognition by the surrounding community, Mm. baptismal recognition by families. And if a Japanese person refuses water baptism but wants to continue a secret disciple of Jesus, there's good reason to question whether they're actually born again. Mm. You you know, you want to teach them and say, look, Jesus does command us to be water baptized. But baptismal regeneration is most universally taught by the Roman Catholic Church. They teach that babies that are baptized become thereby born again, Mm. and that's false. So uh, this is not an example of baptismal regeneration. Instead, it's an example of the Holy Spirit coming on individuals as a clear marker in that first century apostolic age way. So in verse 8, we begin this move into Paul's ministry among both Jews and Gentiles. What do we learn from these verses about Paul's preaching ministry to the Jews, where he preached, what he preached to them, in what manner he preached, how long he preached, how successful was his preaching? There's a lot in verses 8 through 10 that we learn about Paul's ministry. Yeah, so Paul goes to the synagogue, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. So if there's a synagogue in a community, which there wasn't as far as we can tell in Philippi, So he goes down to a river where he finds a place of prayer and talks to Lydia and some women down there. But if there's a synagogue, he's going to go there and he's going to do this. He's going to reason persuasively from the scripture. He's going to start there. And again, just humanly speaking, just in terms of wisdom and intelligence, if you get some some of these Jews to to convert, you got some co-laborers for the harvest field. They're going to come out and be with you and share the gospel. Hmm. So also there's that sense of loyalty he has to his countrymen. So he goes there and for three months, good long while, he's arguing persuasively based on scripture that Jesus is the Christ. And the more he goes on, the more divisive the thing gets. This is one of the major minor themes of the of the gospel of john the major theme of the gospel of john is that jesus is the christ the son of god the minor theme is everywhere the true gospel of christ is preached there's division believers and unbelievers sons of god versus sons of the devil and so you get the same thing here three months he's there and the more he goes on some of them begin to become abusive Mm. and they're talking with great hostility against paul and they begin to persecute him week by week and look at his look at his amazing perseverance he just sticks with it for months but there comes an end to that point yeah what did paul do when the jews became obstinate and what was the effect of paul's teaching the gentile believers daily in the lecture hall of tyrannus so what he does is he takes what disciples there were so there's some fruit it's sad i'm sure paul was heartbroken he's like why aren't there more I mean, why most of them being abusive? Why most of them publicly maligning the way it says? You know, they're, they're, what they're saying is they're, they're going out and slandering Christianity. The way, by the way, is Christianity. So they're publicly maligning Jesus. Hmm. They're blaspheming. Paul called himself a blasphemer. He didn't blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob directly. He blasphemed his son. And that's why he called himself a blasphemer. These folks, by publicly maligning the way, Jesus said, I am the way, mm. they're blaspheming. 
So Paul's done with them. He shakes the dust off to some degree, and then he takes whatever Jewish converts there are and goes over to a public lecture hall and kind of rents some space there, the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and starts teaching. So he's not doing the synagogue anymore. He's going there to teach. And he goes and he does that daily. Look at that. Daily. So every single day he's teaching doctrine. Hmm. And he does it for two years, daily for two years. So this is a deep dive into Christian theology. And a powerful impact as well. If we read verse 10 right on the heels of what we just talked about, it says, continue for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. This is powerful. How do we account for that widespread dissemination of the word of God that we see there? Oh, it's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's using Paul's teaching ministry. Um, they're sending out laborers into the harvest field. They're trained and sent out. They're not just sitting there, you know, in a 20 year PhD program. They're like, like two years. And my, my feeling is very few of them probably would have been there for the full two years. They get enough training and teaching. Hmm. Uh, we get the book of Romans. All right. So I can imagine Paul teaching through the doctrines that he wrote in the book of Romans. It's going to be the same thing. And then he sends them out. And so everyone in the province of Asia, what is that? That's modern day Turkey. Uh, heard the word of the Lord. So God, the Holy Spirit, is moving out with the gospel, and many people are hearing. It actually says in in Romans, I think it is, there's nowhere pl- uh, for me to work in this area. Everybody's heard. There's nothing more for me to do here. Wow. That's amazing. Luke goes on to describe the miracles performed by Paul as extraordinary. What made these miracles extraordinary, and what's the significance of the fact that they were that? All right. Well, here we go again. We got another descriptive, prescriptive thing. I say this, but this is bad. I mean, this is like uh, Benny Hinn or some of the modern day faith healers and all that. You know, where they're they're going to send out some blessed handkerchiefs or some blessed trinkets or whatever. Major money making going on in that. People want to be they want to be healed. And, and, you know, it's tragic how much some of these charlatans, these prosperity gospel faith healer types take advantage of people. Mm. But the truth of the matter is there were handkerchiefs that were taken from Paul and brought to sick people and they were healed. And so, you know, it's amazing. And it's extraordinary miracles, which is a little redundant. Every miracle <laughs> by definition is extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's hard to define miracles, but the most common definition is something that so-called violates the laws of nature. I've never liked that because God wrote the laws of nature. He's not violating nature as though God is somehow mugging nature and he's going to, or, you know, just violating it. You know, it's like, no, I'm, I do nature. Mm. And when I want, I can suspend the law of gravity. Gravity, as in Jesus' ascension and walking on water, I can I can do that. So I don't like that definition of miracles. But let's be honest, miracles are extraordinary. But we have to say some miracles are greater than others. I'd have to say the raising of Lazarus from the dead after four days is an extraordinary miracle. Mm. Uh, the stilling of the storm, extraordinary miracle. So um, I would have to say this handkerchief thing seems to be what Luke meant by extraordinary miracles. Yeah, a unique thing that this is like, no, – I've not seen this. Healing. This, this is, is crazy. something new. Yeah. yeah. What's the significance of the amazing story of the seven sons of Sceva that follows right on the heels of this talk of all the power uh, that is at work in Paul? And what does it teach us about the power of Christ through Paul as well as the power of demons? Well, it's really quite remarkable. Let's go back to the handkerchiefs. Verse 12, it says that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left. Imagine an evil spirit evicted by a handkerchief. Oh, no. (laughs) 
<laughs> but but we know mm. we know what's really going on. Mm. Resist the devil, and he will what flee from you. He's not fleeing from you. He's f- fleeing from the triune God who's behind you. And so, in some unusual way, extraordinary way, we already said that the handkerchief was tied to the ministry of Paul, and the demons had to respect it because the Holy Spirit made them respect it. So now we've got this case study of these seven sons of Sceva, some Jews. They were not believers in Christ in any way, but they had heard some aspects of the gospel and they try, they want to try this thing out. It's like they're amateur magicians. It's like, let's try, hey, let's give it a shot, you know? So um, there are some demon-possessed people in the synagogue maybe or in their community or in their homes. And they're like, all right, let's give it a shot. By the name of this Jesus whom Paul is preaching, I command you to come out. Uh, and so, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say you know, too much against them. Maybe they just genuinely wanted to see some boy or girl or mm-hmm. some man healed. Uh, it's obviously greatly distressing to have a maniac in your home, somebody who's crazy and howling or throwing himself into the fire or the water. So they're trying to do that, but at this point, you know, seven sons of Sceva, the Jewish, a Jewish chief priest are doing this. So they're like, hey, this is a ministry. Um, now, Jesus says to his enemies, he said, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God's come upon you. Hmm. So you look at it. Let me tell me, what's your track record in exorcism? How you doing? Mm. You're not doing it. They're not leaving. So this is an example of they're they're not leaving. They're not obeying. Why would they? So at any rate, they're saying in this name, the name of this Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. And these seven sons of Sceva are doing that. Now, one day, the evil spirit answered them. A demon answered back, Jesus I know. And my translation said, I know about Paul. So it's a different Greek word here, you say recognize, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, I, I know Jesus, <laughs> and I've heard about Paul, but who are you? Mm. So it's pretty interesting. First of all, Paul's reputation among the demons, pretty amazing, but then even more Jesus's. But then what happens? The demon-possessed man takes on seven of these grown men and licks them, beats them. So I, I don't know. I'm just – I was – kind of chuckling myself as I heard you read the text and I'm picturing a Bruce Lee martial arts movie. <laughs> I mean, this guy is dominating him. What do you think? Yeah, just unbelievable overpowering of a seemingly insurmountable group of men. Yeah. So it, it reminds me, of course, of the demonic the Gadarenes who mm. could not be restrained with fetters and leg chains and, and he often broke chains. Mm. And again, the, the holy angel that came down from heaven and rolled back Jesus' stone and sat on it, effortless, just no problem. So the demons are powerful. And so this man was powerful. And and look what happened to the seven sons of Sceva. Bad day for them. They're stripped of all their clothes, and they're beaten up and bleeding, and they're out in the street naked and bleeding. Mm. I mean, they're humiliated. They've been utterly humiliated. So what do I get out of this? What I get is the amazing power of Jesus. Because again and again, as we're walking through the gospel of Mark now in my preaching, again and again, 
effortless power over the demons. Conversely, they're terrified of Jesus. Mm. They're absolutely terrified. There's no doubt about it. They're afraid Jesus is going to torture them before the appointed time. They're afraid of Jesus. And so the result here in Asia Minor is people living in Ephesus in that entire region, they're seized with fear. They realize the power of Jesus. Mm. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. So that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's amazing that we have this kind of dual impact of what takes place, the humiliation of those who would misuse uh, this power or attempt to, and then the powerful exaltation of Christ in spite of that humiliation that's just taken place. Yeah, no, I remember my systematic theology professor, Roger Nicole, was teaching on the doctrine of inerrancy, the inspiration authority of Scripture. And he actually said, we don't usually like to quote demons, but I think we can do some of the quoting of demons, all right? We look at Jesus's view of Scripture, and you cannot have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus. And you look at Paul's view of Scripture, and he said, all Scripture is God-breathed. But some liberal comes along and is questioning the inspiration authority of Scripture. Just say this, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? (laughs) Who are you? (laughs) Hmm. I have no interest in your <laughs> views on scripture. Hmm. So I think that's pretty fun. But like Roger Nicole said, we don't usually like to quote demons. So at any rate, the the advance of the gospel is done every step of the way against demonic force of evil in the heavenly realms, against yeah. Satan. Territory, namely people, are being taken, rescued from his dark kingdom. It's a work of power. What's amazing in verses 18 through 19 is the impact of Christ being held in high esteem. How do those verses give us a display of true repentance in light of this estimation of Christ? All right. They're publicly, openly confessing their dark deeds. All right, in verse 18, uh, no shame, no concern. They just want to be made right with God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. They're afraid of the Lord now. They're not afraid of public shame anymore. Hmm. They don't want to go to hell. They don't want to be condemned for their dark deeds. Furthermore, there's an occultic aspect here. There is a deep occultic side to this paganism here. They are openly engaging demons. Now, I believe, you know, and we're going to see in the rest of this chapter next time, God willing, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This was uh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was a major center hmm. of animistic or polytheistic worship. Polytheistic, all right? A, a worship of a Greek goddess. People came from all over that part of the world to worship her. So do you think any demons were there? Paul says the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons. So demons are God and goddess impersonators, including Allah including Vishnu, including any false god, demons impersonate that false god. And so we have here uh, some people who are deeply immersed in occultic behavior. And they have writing, written documents that told incantations perhaps or dark arts that were circulated and they were very valuable. Books were valuable back then. And they say, we got to get rid of this stuff. And they made a big bonfire and Mm. they burned Mm. these scrolls. They they brought them together and burned them publicly. And the value was 50,000 silver pieces, 50,000 days wages. Lots of money went into that. The people would rather burn that Mm. uh, than continue in that pattern of darkness. So it's clear display of costly repentance. Yeah. 
I love verse 20. It's this repeated refrain that we hear again and again. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Just a, a powerful picture of what's happening as Christ is proclaimed and yeah. these people are repenting. And may that happen today. I mean, that's something. We, we could just take that out of context and just pray it. We can mm. think about missionaries, say, mm. Lord, please, through this person or that person, through this missionary, would would you work so that the way of the Lord and the word of the Lord would spread widely and grow in power? It's a great thing to pray. What do we learn in verses 21 and 22? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this passage we've been examining today? All right, so Paul wants to go back to Jerusalem, uh, undoubtedly, to honor the law of Moses for one of the three times a year pilgrimages that were required of Jews. And uh, so he wanted to go back there, uh, but he wants to pass through Macedonia. So he's got to go, remember the man from Macedonia in Acts 16 saying, come over and help us. So he's got to go back over to Philippi and Thessalonica, Berea, come on down to Athens and that whole region and then take a boat probably back to Jerusalem. Uh, he wants to get there and then he wants to go to Rome. So he's ambitious in a good way. He's got plans. He's, he's not just like, I don't know what to do. Uh, he, he's going somewhere and he wants to preach to Jerusalem and Rome and he's going to go there. He's going to go to bo- both places and he's going to be arrested and, and persecuted in both places. So we'll see that. Um, but also he's got some helpers, Timothy and Erastus. We know Timothy very well. Erastus, we also know a little bit about and they go to um, go to Macedonia and uh, prepare the way. So he's got they're almost like his advanced team. Hmm. So what do we learn from this? Just many things. Just a fascinating passage. But we just see the Holy Spirit working through Paul to spread the gospel through the province of Asia. This has been episode thirty-eight in our Acts Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode thirty-nine entitled "Ousted by Riots: The Ministry Continues," where we'll discuss Acts chapter nineteen, verses twenty-three through chapter twenty, verse twelve. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.